I was under the impression that I had my enough my, enough of my emergency fund put away because I now have more money in my bank account than I've ever had. But because that's that's a new experience, I was like, wow, this is this is awesome. But um, just because you've got more money than you've ever had, like you were saying, doesn't mean it's time to start taking risk. From Rise Up Financial, it's This American Wallet, a show where we anonymously interview people from all walks of life about how they make, save, and spend their money. I'm your host, Annalise Brethauer. I'm a certified financial planner professional on a mission to break the taboo of talking about money. As a reminder, nothing discussed on this episode should be considered advice of any kind. Please consult the appropriate financial professional about your specific situation. Now back to the show. Well, thanks so much for being here. I am sitting here with a salesperson for a startup, which is an unusual job. Um, So I really wanted to have him on the podcast and talk about his background. So really appreciate you being here with us. And why don't you just start by giving us a little bit of background about you, your career, and how you got here today. Of course, of course. Uh, Well, uh, first and foremost, thank you for having me on the pod. It's quite an honor to be here speaking with you. Um, To give a little context and kind of who I am and um, where I'm at in my my life and my financial life. um, Well, I'm I'm a college grad. I have some student loans, uh, but college put me in a good position. Um, I was able to get uh, really great employment um, right after graduating college. So, um, you know, even though I had those student loans come with me after I left college, it went right into the workforce. Um, I've been doing that for about two years. I've been with the same company, been doing sales for that company. So I have pretty... um, unique uh, compensation structure that's not the same for every single, um, you know, employee out there. It's a little bit different specific to sales with your, um, you know, your salary and your commission. But um, yeah, you know, in short, uh, college grad, got some student loans that hang over my head and working super hard to try to, uh, um, I I think it's fun to try and make as much money as I possibly can. So tell me more about why did you get into sales? And for some listeners, I'm guessing um, their their image of a salesperson is somebody who comes and knocks on your door or, you know, sends you annoying emails. So talk to us a little bit. First, why did you get into sales? And second, what is sales? What does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, um, there's, there's why I think I got into sales and there's probably the reason why I actually got into sales. Um, why I think I got into sales uh, was I've always been a people person. I absolutely love just talking to someone. That's what I do all day as a salesperson and just communicate with people over email and phone. Um, and, you know, hindsight always twenty twenty. This is the perfect spot for someone with my kind of personality where I really feed off of interacting with people. Hmm. Um, That's why I think I did sales. Realistically, I probably did sales because that's what my dad does. Hmm. Uh, He's a sales manager. He's done B2B sales. And, um, you know, when I was sitting at my career advisor back going through college, trying to figure out, you know, they they looked at me and said, what do you want to do with your career? The only reference point I have was what my dad did. And I said, I want to do B2B sales. And here we are. 
So, mm. um, and then you had another question in there. I answered, what was, what was the other one? What is, what does sales look like? Yeah. Yeah. Just, just to give people an understanding. So you keep using B2B sales. So um, mm. that means business to business sales. Tell us more about what business to business sales looks like on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my, my sales career really started out as B2C sales, business to consumer. Mm. Um, I started out doing sales pretty young unintentionally. I worked at a farmer's market selling hot and cold beverages to the farmer market goers. I did that for about six summers. Um, after that, we graduated on a B2B sales, which is business to business. Um, and what that looks like on a day-to-day basis, it's a lot different than B2C. B2C, at least in my perspective, in my experiences, B2C was super quick. Um, it was trying to make a very strong value proposition that you can capitalize on instantly. Hmm. Um, whereas B2B, there's less of that quicker turnaround. Um, there's sales cycles, which is different for every product, but I think they tend to be a lot longer than your B2C hmm. uh, type world. And for me in B2B sales, it's mostly relationship management and trying to be as helpful as I can. It's understanding people's problems. I'm trying to make good recommendations, whether that's my product, which my boss likes it when I think that my product is the most helpful, but sometimes it's saying, Hey, this isn't what's best for you. So it's a lot about, um, establishing those relationships because maybe you don't sell to them today, but because you recommended something else, they actually could be a, a very valuable customer for you over, you know, hopefully five, 10, 15, 20, 50 years. I want to circle back because you mentioned why you thought you were going into sales, but then kind of went back and said, okay, but really it's because what I saw my dad do um, mm -hmm. and what my dad do successfully. So Talk to us about what money was like for you growing up in with your parents and your siblings in your household. Uh, that's a really great question. Um, let's see here. Where do we want to start? Uh, well, let's start when I was younger. Um, <laughs> um, when I was a lot younger, I did and still do have two parents that are together that both work full time. Hmm. Um, when I was a lot younger, they worked as hard, but we didn't make quite as much money. Um, at least I've come to understand, you know, when you're younger, you just, what your parents provide, that's what your reality is. And you don't really realize there's a reality outside of that until you have an experience, you know, where you bring an off-brand pair of shoes to school and someone notices that those are offering, they call you and you go home crying to your mom. And that's when I kind of learned really early on that like, that's what shopping at Payless means. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of where I started out. And that's where I was first kind of introduced to more of a financial world was within my family. And my parents were unbelievably hard workers and they like to save their money, but they also, you know, would... I don't think celebrates the right word, but they would be willing to, you know, we would go out to dinner once a month and that was something we looked forward to. And then other than that, it would made more sense to eat dinner at home. And so I think that was a really great foundation. Um, and it kind of looped back into what I was talking about earlier with the start of my sales career. Um, 
I always was given money-making opportunities by my parents, like doing chores, but there was never just a blanket allowance. So mm -hmm. um, I figured that, and reflecting back, I figured, you know, their example of their hard work um, and then them providing me the opportunity to work hard to make my own money, I think really set me up well, and I'd like to do the same thing with my children one day. Uh, because after I kind of maxed out what I could make on my allowances, that's when I wanted to move towards work at the farmer's market. Um, I think they gave me a very, very, very good um, form in which to follow. Uh, mm -hmm. They led great by example, and I think that's really gonna carry um, me, not just where I'm at now at 24, but in my career for the rest of my life, they've always shown a really good example of hard work and that hard work, you know, tends to pay off. So did they talk about money or were these things that you just kind of gathered as, as you were growing up? Talk about money. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked about it. I'd ask for money and they would show me the chore sheet and show me where I can make money. Mm -hmm. uh, I learned it. It was never a conversation. I've learned that my parents invested in our education and not other areas. Mm -hmm. um, I realized that in high school when some of my classmates had pools and I wondered my pool was above ground and theirs was below ground. Um, so it, 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 was, it was a learned experience. Um, and I've been able to see my parents and their efforts really pay off. Um, we don't have an in-ground pool now, but my parents do very well for themselves. And um, seeing that story painted throughout my life, 24 years, it's so unbelievably valuable because I want to do the same thing as they've done. I've seen them hard. I've seen both of them work very hard. Um, and show that example that's something that I'd like to do for myself so in terms of talking about it not really I think um, at least the way that my parents like to teach is um, this is how we do it um, you know it works pretty well for us you should probably do the same thing so got it yeah yeah so they weren't sitting down saying okay here's the value of a dollar but they were when you were saying hey can I have money to go to the movies they're like here's this George chart you can either you know, clean the toilet or vacuum the living room. Yep. Or go into the garage and grab all the empty cans that we've been saving. We'll go take those and get the cans recycled and, you know, see how many we can get turned yeah. around. Today. Absolutely. Yeah. So how has your relationship with money changed um, from when you were a child to now in your adult life? Good question. Does it, does it mean, does money mean something different to you now than it did back then? Does money mean something different to me now than it does back then? Um, I think the way that I view it has changed. Um, when I was younger, it was a means to an end. Uh, I was able to do X amount of chores and get a video game. Mm -hmm. um, but then when I went, uh, you know, as I grew up, started to gain more control of my finances in high school, um, and then when I went to college, uh, I was given, you know, my portion of the student loan at the beginning of each term, and I had my jobs that I made, and so I managed my my own personal budget throughout college. Sure. Uh, that experience turned it less from a means to an end, where it's like, okay, I get my student loan check, that's like 
40 video games. It was, this is my money and I need to figure out how to make it work throughout the whole term and also figure out where I can supplement into that. Um, that was phenomenal preparation. Uh, for my kids one day, I would love to be able to just say, good luck in college. You know, here's your portion of your student loan. Make sure it works because you're not getting any more money from me. Um, that was phenomenal preparation for the real world because um, now that I have a you know consistent job, um, I'm not just going to the video game store every day. Um, I view it differently now, without a doubt. Um, the way that I'm starting to look at it um, is uh, kind of like a lever um, in a well. Mm. And, uh, and one thing that I found um, really exciting about this podcast is uh, I want to know, and I'm really interested in exploring, but I don't have a lot of opportunities glaring at me as to what I can do with my money as a lever to kind of prop myself up um, before, you know, maybe moving towards real estate, which I think maybe is farther off than I would like it to be, but I'm interested, um, at least in speaking with you, um, and learning more about kind of what that money can do in the interim. Yeah. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point that most of us are not taught personal finance in school. So not taught, you know, it sounds like your parents did a really good job of, of setting you up to have your own motivation to, to learn how to manage the money you have, but then nobody teaches you, okay, what do I do with additional money? You know, I've worked really hard. I've saved, I've figured out how to keep my expenses low, but now I've got this additional money. How do I use that to the highest and best use for my own nourishment and needs um, and the life that you want to create for you and your family? So I think it's a really, really good question. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to think, should we just jump right into, so talk to us about, do you budget how you, from what I'm hearing, you're, you have a sense of ease in kind of managing your monthly expenses, living well within your means. How do you do that? Uh, good question. Um, I was able to establish like uh, in my, in my perspective, I think maybe, uh, my mom might disagree, but I think I was able to establish really good um, routines and practices when I was on a much tighter budget. When I was when I had my student loan and I had my nanny job in college, mm. um, I was able to identify kind of what my fixed costs were, my rent, my utilities. I was able to get a sense as to where that was, um, and my budget was much tighter uh, back then. Um, in gaining additional income into moving into a like salaried full-time position, rent hasn't changed all that much. Utilities haven't changed all that much. How much food I consume hasn't changed all that much. And my tendencies in terms of what I like to do hasn't changed that much. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a carryover of having to be in a tighter situation before. Um, but like you were like you were mentioning earlier, um, there's not a really blatant message as to what you're supposed to do when 
maybe your income goes up, but your but you know your um, your baseline stays the same. Uh, yeah, I, I know that you know money sitting in an account. Um, it's Earning losing money, as they say, right? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think you make a really good point, and it's a point that I've um, that I've heard quite a bit, and actually adhere to myself, which is when you you learn how to create a sustainable lifestyle, especially while you're in school and you don't have much. And then as you work into the world and and move up and make more money, you don't change your lifestyle at the same rate. So then the difference between what it costs for you to live your lifestyle where you're comfortable enough and what you earn just gets larger. And that's how you really create wealth over time. Um, so I think that's that's really smart. Let's talk a little bit. Are you comfortable sharing um, dollars for are you paid salary plus commission? Or are you comfortable sharing what that's yeah, like for you? I'm, I'm anonymous, so I've got no problem. <laughs> I like I like to give people the option, you know, yeah. everyone's a different comfort level. Yeah. Um, uh, so my, the breakdown is I receive a salary and then I receive a commission on that in sales. Mm-hmm. Um, from a dollar amount on the salary standpoint, um, I want to say it's $44,000 a year pre-tax. Um, and then commission is really, really, really up to the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't have a phenomenal data set to go off of. I've been full-time for almost two years now. Um, but after the first year, it was about one-to-one ratio salary to commission. Mm-hmm. Um, so making about the same amount of salary as you are in commission. Yeah. Some months, a lot more, some months less. Yeah. Fluctuates. Like yeah. Yeah. And, and the, I think one of the really cool parts about sales that um, I think is important for people to understand is, is you really have a sense of power in your um, your income that a lot of people don't have because you know if half your income is is commission and you go out and you know you've got a fantastic month you actually get to bring in bring in that money into the door mm-hmm. um, so I think that's a cool a cool aspect of sales that not a lot of other jobs have. It's a sense of power, at, le- yeah. at least in my perspective. It's, yeah. uh, I get a feeling at the start of every day or the start of every week, every month that, you know, hey, I, I can give myself a raise today if I really want to focus and, um, you know, make some money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about, um, before we get to, before we hit record here, we started talking a little bit about student loans. Yeah. Um, so I want to get there and then, then let's kind of venture into what are some options for what you can do with um, your quote unquote extra money that's just sitting in a bank account. Um, okay. So right now, as we're recording this, the CARES Act, the stimulus bill post coronavirus has been passed and signed into law. And a portion of that has to do with student loans. So mm-hmm. Do you know whether your student loans are direct um, federal student loans? Um, yes, they are. They are. Okay. I'm pretty sure they're handled by a third-party company, but I know it's a federal loan. Okay. So th- there's going to be – I'm going to talk about this in two, two different ways because the, the bill, essentially, it's not automatic. You have to go 
have to go onto the website and pause it yourself, but you don't have to pay onto your federal student loans until September 30th. And you do not accrue any interest from now until that date. So for somebody that apply for it. So you have to log in and you have to say pause my automatic payments. Yes, this is okay. not this is not an automatic from what I understand at this point. And there is still some uncertainty um, with the bill. Mm -hmm. But essentially, so for somebody, if you had any other debt and it kind of sounds like you don't, do you have a car loan or anything like that? I do you have a car loan? There's a car loan. Let's say, yeah, sorry. Let's, let's start. Let's start, Let's look at liabilities. We've got our student loan, our car loan, um, credit card that stays paid off. Yeah. I would say it's just the, the student loan and the car loan. Yeah. So this is an interesting potential planning opportunity for somebody that has high interest debt. So not in your case, but if somebody was carrying a credit card balance, it would be beneficial for them to pause their student loans and funnel all of that money onto the credit card mm -hmm. because you're paying off your highest interest debt. So um, from the car loan perspective, it's a depreciating asset. Mm -hmm. So if, you're, if your car loan is, you know, a couple percent or essentially no interest, I don't know what your interest rate is, then maybe it doesn't make sense. But if it's comp, I don't know either. <laughs> so we can, we can find out um, because if it's comparable, it may be something to think about. Do I want to pause? Put, it doesn't mean that you're not going to pay, you know, the dollar amount that you would have been paying on the student loan. It's just, you're not going to be accruing interest. Yeah. Uncle Sam will get that money regardless. Exactly. Just, exactly. Three months pushed back. <laughs> yep. 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 Exactly. So, so for somebody that does have high interest debt, um, it's definitely a, a pretty, a more easy decision for someone like you. Um, you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons mm -hmm. because, um, yeah. So if you, if you stopped, if you push pause on your student loans and for the next six months, you aggressively paid off your car. Mm -hmm. And if that, let's say that interest rate is 6% and the student loans rate is 6% or, you know, somewhere around there, six or seven, um, that may make sense. Or you may be in the boat where you're comfortable paying the loan, so you want to keep aggressively paying it down. Um, so a couple things here. When you talk about having money sitting in, in a bank account. It sounds very, it sounds very drug overlord. <laughs> okay, that's not, that's, not, that's not where my mind was going. Just, just that you have... Um, you haven't spent all of your income mm -hmm. and you haven't known exactly where to put it. So it's sitting in the bank. Yes, that's exactly it. It's not um, in a treasure chest on some island somewhere. <laughs> so the first thing is you want to make sure that you have at least, I like six months of living expenses in, a, in an emergency fund. Mm -hmm. So I would open up a new account, a new savings account. You can call it your rainy day fund, your emergency fund. You, you'll probably make a more fun name than I can think of um, for it and just set that money aside. Mm -hmm. Big, uh, big uh, exotic animal cat fund. I'm just on my uh, um, <laughs> Tiger King craze as of late. Sorry. Yes, speaking of um, illegal activity, do not go <laughs> buy big cats with your extra money. Um, no, but 
not so, a good investment. Yeah, not a good investment. Yes. No, not in yourself, not in the cat, not financially, not, none of it. Um, yeah, that show is really creepy. Kind of, <laughs> we're we're going to go on to a tangent here, but it, it kind of infuriated me. I, I was mad because every person had a different angle on doing the same messed up thing and propping off the wild animals. <laughs> it made me so mad. Yep. I was like, everyone's doing the same thing. Yep. You yep. got Joe yeah. starting them. You've got Carol finishing them out. And you've got Doc Antle in the middle being a freak. Um, everyone was just profiting off these big cats that should, shouldn't be in um, private custody at all. <laughs> yeah. I totally, it, I, yeah, I totally agree. It made me cringe and I don't know about you, but Carol is not on my nice list. I'm going to put no, it that way. I agree. I think there is a world in which Carol's husband is in Costa Rica and he's not dead and Carol didn't feed him to the tiger. Really? I think that's more, I think that I, I like to chalk things up to what's the most likely explanation and what of all the likely ones is probably what happened. I think it's more likely that this guy who's been very good at making money left his crazy wife to Costa Rica than her killing him for all of his money and her feeding him to the tigers. I, th I have a lot of faith in this first husband. Um, <laughs> I don't subscribe to the Car Carol fed him the tigers uh, conversation. What about Carol buried him under the septic tank? See that one, that's a pretty good argument. And she netted a lot of money. So I will entertain that conversation, but I don't know why. There's something about her first husband where I think he's in Costa Rica. Interesting. Yeah, the whole thing just like gave me the, ugh, the shivers. Yeah. It was good. It was a good watch though. Highly recommend it. It is an entertaining watch. Yes, yes. definitely. All right. Should we circle back here to... Yes. And I did, before we circle back, I just want to say I wasn't expecting to get your official financial advice on investing in big cats, but I'm happy we were able to get to that today. <laughs> yeah. So that disclaimer, this is all educational purposes. Please talk to your financial professional. Um, keep, keep that disclaimer in there. Uh, okay. I lost my train of thought. We were talking about student loans. We were talking, oh, emergency fund. So an emergency fund and that one is a operating cash. Yeah. That emergency fund should stay in cash. Yep. And that's six be, months out. I recommend six months. You know, some people say three to six months. Personally, I have 12. Um, and it's basic expenses. So this doesn't include, you know, your fancy vacation or, you know, the extras you spend. It's, it's, yeah. if you are in a tough spot, um, would you have enough to, to sustain a period of time? And so that really depends on your risk tolerance. I'm a conservative person. Um, and that's even why I recommend six over three. Mm. With that said, if you don't have, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about your specific situation with this recommendation, because for people who don't have anything saved, you know, start with a dollar yeah. and go from there. Yeah. So, um, and, I think, and I think recent events in the world show why it's unbelievably important to, if you can save just for yourself, why it's important. Um, absolutely. I, I saw some figures today. I don't think I'll be able to pull them up quickly enough, but um, unemployment is projected to be at, I think like 30%. Um, it's a phenomenal reminder now more than ever to make sure you are setting some aside. Yeah. Yeah. 
completely agree with that. Um, and like I said, and I, and I say this often, but save early and save often. It's the habit that matters. And you already have that habit. So then it's okay. What, what do you do to kind of level up from there? Yeah. Um, so once you have your emergency fund, think about in the next five years, what are big purchases you want to make? Are you thinking about wanting to buy a house? Do you want to start a business? Do you want to, you know, whatever it is, really, I think between this year and five years from now, what, what are your kind of big savings goals? You know, that's, that's a really good question. Is it unreasonable for me as a 24-year-old to think it's unreasonable to have a house in that five-year plan? Or in my opinion, I would chalk it up to more of a 10, 15-year goal. Um, well, that depends how much you're willing to save and how much your the house you want to buy costs. Yeah, that's, there are a lot of factors there. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, but I really think it's important to think about those things now because I never advise anybody to put any money in the financial markets that you're going to need in the next five years, really yeah. five, five to seven years. It's um, like gambling money. When you go to Vegas, you take your money that you're willing to lose and you chalk, you don't expect to get it back when you put it there. Is that kind of what you're saying? Um, in some ways, but, but more that markets go up and down as you know, we've been experiencing recently and it's healthy for markets to go up and down. So you want any money that goes into the stock market, you want to be able to ride that wave. Mm -hmm. And typically, classically, historically, market cycles take about seven years, kind of from peak to trough. And that's not, you know, that's not a hard and fast, but just in general terms. So money, I know, um, because we've talked about this before, that you are putting money into a Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. So that's retirement money. So that's money that you really don't want to touch until you're at least 59 and a half, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, maybe Can't not wait. until much, <laughs> maybe until much, not much later, but um, anyway, so, so that's money that has a very long, what they call time horizon. Mm -hmm. So when you have a lot of years, you are going to ride these waves. What's happening now, it's going to be a drop in the bucket when you look at the next, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. But with money that you might need in five years, if you go invest that in the stock market, so let's say you want to buy a house in five years and mm -hmm. you think you're going to need $80,000 as a down payment to buy the house and you put that money into the stock market now, if in five years we're in a downturn or in three years we've had a downturn, it's very hard to make that back up in a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It's not as extreme as the Vegas example <laughs> where you lose it and it's gone. But I get, I, it's, it's a few rungs down where you need to know exactly kind of what you want to do with your money when you're going to put it in the market, if you're going to try to pull it out or not. Um, and if you can let it ride those waves. Exactly. Exactly. The only time you lock in a loss is when you sell. So mm -hmm. you really want to be able to ride that wave. And that, that really needs to be money that you don't need in the short term. Mm -hmm. So, um, so for example, let's say you wanted to buy a house in 15 years. And we said, okay, we've got 15 years. 
let's set up an appropriate asset allocation, invest that money in the market. As you got closer to needing that money, we would want to reduce your risk. Mm -hmm. So practically that looks like having less stocks and more bonds in a portfolio or having less stocks, more cash in a portfolio, that type of thing. Um, but let's just kind of remove all the complications. And, and the first question to ask yourself is what do you want in the next five years? And mm -hmm. I, if that looks like a house, I'd go on Zillow, look at what some houses cost, kind of get a sense of what you might need for that savings goal. And then we'd make a plan. So, um, to, to bring this, uh, you know, f for me, for, to bring this into kind of like a tangible, like action, mm -hmm. um, that's super helpful. Um, in my perspective, one of this changes anything is, you know, I don't know if I'd necessarily want to be buying a home, uh, in a five year standpoint, it would be awesome to be buying property from a, uh, from an asset, you know, money-making perspective and not, I um, want to buy my home for me and that's what I'm going to live in for the next 50 years. And I'm assuming that just really comes down to what we're looking at. Is, so is that a question saying a home that I want to live in for the long-term versus a home that I would want to be a rental property or that sort I, of thing? I think, I, I guess, you know, to answer your question earlier, of you know what do you want to accomplish in the next five years financially? It'd be nice to um, have a five-year goal of being involved in the real estate market in any capacity, mm -hmm. not from a personal standpoint, but from that as a potential financial lever that I can use to make money. Um, sure. So, what's the lowest hanging fruit in the real estate market? I guess would be kind of the or what should we look at um, in terms of you know trying to make that move towards that direction. Well, let me ask you this first. Why do you want to invest in the real estate market? Well, is in is in well, I was listening to a podcast earlier today with Barbara Corcoran or Cochran or um, Shark Tank lady. Uh, she goes, it's the best investment out there. You can touch it, you can feel it, and you can know that's what you um, you know, that's what you spent your money on. And uh, from someone who oddly enough studied finance in college um and uh you know tries to keep a a, a a pulse on kind of what's going on in my mind you you make your money you invest in stocks you invest in real estate and then if you're lucky enough you get to invest in commercial real estate and that's how you make a bunch of money but um that's that's what i've understood is the financial you know path of what you can do i'm assuming to you it's comical but from a 24 year old that's what you think of where you can invest your money you've got stocks and real estate sure yeah i get that um it's one way it's one way and, and i here's here's what i'll caution and especially as a financial planner um i think what sets apart a, a good financial planner is somebody who understands what's most important to the client mm -hmm and what's going to provide them the most value and nourishment um, and joy in their life. And it may not look exactly like what Barbara thinks. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's really getting to the core of what's going to provide, like what is, what is the good life for mm -hmm. you? 
um, and, and being open to looking at what options there are out there. Um, because just, you know, buying, let's say, for example, right now you went out and bought, you leveraged yourself, you bought a rental property, you had, you got renters in there three months ago and now they can't pay their rent. Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, you have the mortgage to pay the property taxes to pay, Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those things. So, so it's not, it's not a plug, plug and play yeah. as much as sometimes people make it seem that way. Um, there's a, yeah, there, there's a lot of nuance to it. And part of that is just understanding the market and, you know, buying at a good time and understanding when you can really afford it and all of those things. Um, when you come out of school and you've been living on a shoestring budget um, and surviving, and then you start making money it feels like a lot. And we were just talking about that feeling of feeling like a lot isn't the same as being ready to take on additional risk with your money. So um, specifically in this example, we were talking about dollars wise, he needs about $3,000 to kind of sustain basic expenses between car loans, student loans, rent, utilities, insurance, eating, and like having a little bit of fun in life. So, so we said, okay, if we need $3,000, let's multiply that by six for six months. And we, so that would give us 18 and let's round up to 20 and say, okay, we're not going to worry about taking a lot of risk until our savings account hits $20,000 and we dump that over you know, into a rainy day fund. And then we start saving for what we want to take risk. I was under the impression that I had my enough, my, enough of my emergency fund put away because I now have more money in my bank account than I've ever had. But because that's, that's a new experience. I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. But mm-hmm. um, just because you've got more money than you've ever had, like you were saying, doesn't mean it's, time to start taking risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think you really want to have that nice, big, comfortable buffer for that event that you cannot see coming. You know, I think a lot of people have experienced that now, you know, we're, we're in the middle of coronavirus, COVID-19, um, but we just don't know what that is. So it, it, it you know, it's your sleep at night money mm-hmm. To know, okay, I will have six months if I don't make another dollar and I will be okay. Mm-hmm. And being able to maintain the lifestyle, you know, that you have now. And then past that, we were just talking about there's potentially going to be a, a opportunity to invest in real estate. Um, I am no real estate expert, but mortgage rates are at historic lows and um, people are thinking that demand is going to go down and supply is going to go up. So that's, that's better if you're a buyer. Um, it, it could be for a seller in certain circumstances too. But anyways, mm-hmm. so just um, kind of think about that. Even, even though it feels like a ton of money, kind of putting in perspective to, to how much your income is playing into your lifestyle and being able to maintain that no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. in the world would and this is going to be probably a tough question to ask but uh you know when you are making that kind of chug towards having that good rainy day or uh, 
rainy day, you want to call it, let's call it the emergency fund of that six months of operating cash. When you're making that steady chug towards that and you're contributing towards that to, to get where you want, but you also have student loans and a car loan. Mm -hmm. uh, one opportunity that I see currently having is instead of allocating money towards that six month of operating, one thing I could do is instead of putting money there, I could make a stab at the student loan mm -hmm. or the interest on the student loan mm -hmm. or the car um, and that loan. Um, yep. my, my, my temperament is to maintain the status quo. And so I just try to focus on the extra fund. Um, but making stabs, if I were to make a stab at my student loan, um, am I going to go principal? Do I want to go interest or do I don't even want to think about making a stab at the student loan, just pay it for the next 30 years? So I'm just going to give some context to how I'm going to answer that, which is that offline we talked about you having about half of the six months. You've got about three months mm -hmm. in, in your emergency fund. In my opinion, that's enough as a buffer to start. So here's what I would do. I would say, okay, I want to increase my student loan payment from $300 a month to $500 a month. And that's going to go straight into my student loans. I'm going to get a little bit more aggressive about paying them off. My car loan, if that's $300 a month, I'm going to increase that to $350. And then if at the end of the month I have extra money left over, I am going to make a conscious decision. Do I want to put this to my student loans? Do I want to put this to my car loan? Or do I want to increase my emergency fund? So I think it's that thought process that's really important here. Mm -hmm. So while yes, of course, the higher interest debt, so if you have debt, you're paying interest, you pay it off faster, you're going to pay less. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely a big consideration here. Um, if you had only had, let's say, a month's buffer, in your savings account, I would probably say, let's get that up a little bit. Let's yeah. give you a, a bit more of a buffer and then get more aggressive at paying down, you know, traditionally your highest interest debt. But I think for you, you are advanced enough to where it, it's the thought process of understanding, okay, you know, my, my student loans are at six or 7%. My car loan, we don't know what it is, but let's just say it's four or five, maybe even less. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to make that call this month thinking about, you know, maybe I have some sales in the pipeline next month. I'm going to get a, you know, it just, it, does that make sense? No, I, I like that too, because it's how, how could I expect you to tell me exactly, oh, you're going to want to pay the interest on your student loan for the next, you know, nine months. And then after that, you want to do this, like it, it's all very situational. And I think um, the when I asked for an answer, the, answer of a process I think is so much more appropriate because it is month to month who knows you know exactly yeah yeah but I think it's it's also nice to give yourself monthly goals that go above and beyond your minimum payments so I don't know exactly what that looks like for you and and to be honest you probably need to give yourself a range mm -hmm. because there's gonna there's going to be months that you can probably only you know, pay the minimum because you're waiting on a big commission check mm -hmm. that's coming next month. And then next month you're going to pay double. So, and that, that's also why I'm kind of 
and for anybody who doesn't have um, income that's consistent every single pay period, uh, having that process is the way to go so that you can make kind of an educated decision with those funds. To kind of come full circle here, what is your most proud financial moment? That's a great question. Um, I would say most likely, I, I would say the, the financial moment that I am most proud of was when I was able to, so after I graduated, moved back home. Um, that's what made the most financial sense as I was trying to build up a little bit of income. Um, my most proud financial moment was when I moved out from home and I knew that I was going to be able to pay for my own rent take care of, you know, um, my utilities and support the lifestyle that I wanted to live completely independent from my parents. That was something that, um, I looked forward to and I appreciate now more than ever, um, after seeing my parents work as hard as they have and still continue to do, um, the bare minimum that I could do was relieve them of the financial burden that is, uh, myself or any you know kit uh, i wanted to become sufficient as quickly as i possibly could so self-sufficient yeah. yeah that's amazing and uh oh my gosh can you hear that the doorbell that's my husband who got home and i locked him out so hold on one second <laughs> yeah we, we cut out this part everybody has to listen to me run downstairs and <laughs> my husband but it makes me feel like there's a good path ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, I think there is a lot to be said about that emergency fund mm -hmm. and not just having that emergency fund in an emergency, but also knowing you have that there and having a really good emergency fund, I think is can make what's after that. Once you've hit your six months I think it can make that portion of your final financial, you know, life that much more enjoyable because mm -hmm. you do have that, that pad beneath you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and think about too, you know, as your, your lifestyle, as you make more money and you change your lifestyle, that number that goes into that emergency fund will change over time. So, you know, it's not a set it and forget it um, account. It's something that, you know, you want to revisit every year, every two years, just kind of keep in the back of your mind, which is again, why I'm a fan of the process versus just telling somebody, I recommend you do X, Y, Z for X, Y, Z. Um, because really, you know, my intention is to give you the tools that you need so that you have the inner trust with your finances. Uh, and I'm here as a, you know, a support and a resource for that. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I, pre I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today and, and to have the audience. And I hope this was uh, at least helpful for, for one person out there or at least entertaining. But uh, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the Rise Up Tribe. If you're a regular here, thanks so much for listening. You're a valued member of our community. If you'd like to come on the show, Google This American Wallet, which will take you to the podcast page of our website here at Rise Up Financial. Until next time, 
be kind and save money.